Hey, First Church, good to see you guys. Glad you're here. And right now we have family meeting out at Stone Canyon as well as others who will be joining us later online. If you would here at North Garnett, put your hands together, welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, most of you guys are probably aware that today is Super Bowl Sunday, and so I just want to see who our church is for in the game tonight. Now, I understand that a lot of you are disappointed because your team didn't make it. I get that. My team didn't make it either, but if you're going to watch the game tonight, you're probably going to root for somebody, so I just want to take a quick poll. Now, in case you don't know, it's the LA Rams, it's the New England Patriots that are in the game tonight, and so I just want to see where we are. So I'm not asking if you're a big fan of this team or that team, I'm also not asking who you think it's going to win. I just want to see who you're going to be rooting for tonight. So I want you to hoop, holler, shout, clap, let me hear you, okay? So here we go at all of our campuses. How many of you guys are going to be cheering for the Los Angeles Rams? Let me hear you. All right, good number. Cool. Okay, how many guys are going to be cheering for the Patriots? Not as many. I kind of expected that, honestly. For those of you guys who did clap, we'll pray for you because you need it, okay? I'm sorry if that was a deflating comment. Uh, good dad joke right there, you know? Okay. And let me just see, how many of you guys don't care who wins tonight? Anybody just not care? Wow, okay. Well, my son Alex, he is pumped about the game tonight. He's excited. And he's not excited because his favorite team is in the game. They're not. He's actually a Packers fan. Any Packers fans out there? Okay, like two. All right, cool. But uh, he's excited because he just loves football. He loves sports in general. And right now, this pains me to say this, but football is like his favorite sport. Now, I like football, but basketball is my sport. I want it to be his too. But he loves football. He loves to talk about football. He loves to draw football players. He collects football cards. And he loves to watch on TV. And we play it in the backyard when it's warm outside. And even when it's cold inside, he's got a little Nerf football that he and I will pass around. And we'll play little games just one-on-one. One. But it's more fun outside, of course, because when we're outside, some of the neighborhood kids will come over, friends will come over, we'll play some two-hand touch. It's just a lot more fun. And I'll never forget this past summer, we were outside playing a game of two-hand touch. Some of the neighborhood kids were over, and one of the kids threw Alex a pass that was just awful. It was just bad. And everybody would have been fine with, with Alex missing it because, you know, it was a bad pass. But he was determined. He was going to catch it because he gives 110% when he plays. I mean, he is all heart when he plays. Whether it's inside with a Nerf ball or outside to end touch, he is just all heart. He gives his all. And so uh, he dove for this catch and he got it. But it was one of those summer days when it hadn't rained for a long period of time. The ground was hard and dusty and rough. And so he slid across the ground. And when he did, he not only ripped his pants that he was wearing, but he also, he also kind of bruised himself, cut himself, and he started to bleed. And so he had blood on his leg, and it wasn't that bad, but anytime you know you see blood, you kind of stop the game to make sure everybody's all right. So we stopped the game, and I ran over to him, and I was like, uh, hey, buddy, you all right? And he looked at me, and he had these big old eyes, looked like he was getting ready to cry, and he looked down at his leg, at his ripped pants, looked at the blood on his leg, and then he looked back up at me, and he said, Daddy? Did you see that catch I just made? I mean, he was pumped. He was excited. I knew he was all right then. So we cleaned him up, and he got back out there and played some more. But what was he basically saying? It was worth it. All the sweat, blood, and tears, taking that huge risk to catch that ball. It was worth it. And you know what? There are some things in life that are just worth it. They're worth sweat, blood, and tears. There are some things in life that are worth a risk. 
I think you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Helen Keller once wrote, life is either a daring experience or it's nothing at all. Life is either a daring experience or it's nothing at all. And honestly, I think Jesus would agree with that statement. He says something kind of similar in Mark 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to cling to his life, hold on to the comforts of life, that person, they're never really gonna live. But whoever loses his life, gives up the comforts of life, gives up what is normal, what is predictable, for me and for my gospel, Jesus, that person will really live. That person will save it. In other words, whoever wants to cling to the comforts of this life, what this life has to offer, that person never really live. But the person who risks this life, gives up everything for me and for the gospel, my work, my mission, that person will have life. See, contrary to what some people believe and what some churches teach, Jesus didn't save us so that we could live a safe life. No, Jesus didn't save us so we could live a safe life. Jesus saved us so that we could live a life of faith. And there's a huge difference. See, living a life of faith means placing our total and complete trust in him so that we're willing to do whatever he asks, even if it means taking a huge risk. Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. That's sacrificial language. Take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to want to give something up, even give what's most dear to you up at times. And I think the early church, the earliest Christians living in the first century, I think they got that. I think they understood that. And that's why in the first few decades of the church's existence, the followers of Jesus grew from 120 people meeting in the city of Jerusalem to hundreds of thousands of followers across the world. The church grew and grew and grew because they understood they weren't saved to live a safe life. They were saved to live a life of faith. In Acts 15, it describes Paul and Barnabas, two of the early leaders of the church. And look at this description we get of Paul and Barnabas. Verse 26, they risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They risked their lives for the name of Jesus. And in Revelation 12, verse 11, it describes saints, followers of Jesus, who overcome the darkness. And listen to what it says. They were willing to risk, there's that common word again, risk their lives even if it led to death. The earliest Christians understood they weren't saved to play it safe. They were saved to live by faith. And I have to ask, before we go any further, does that also describe the church in our day-to-day? Does that describe your life? Does that describe us? Because here's the thing, I don't think most people start off following Jesus wanting to play it safe. I really don't. I think most people when they're first baptized in the Christ, they're ready to go out and make a difference in this world for him. They're ready to go out and change lives. They want to love people like Jesus. They want to take risks for him. They want to live by faith and go the extra mile to serve him. That's how most of us start our walk with Christ. But over time, as we experience obstacles and pressures start to mount and life happens, I think we tend to play it more and more safe. And the reason why that happens is because over time, I believe our picture of Jesus, our image of Jesus, starts to shrink. 
Over time, our picture of God becomes smaller and smaller. And when your picture of God is small, then you do small things for him. And I think that was the case for the Israelites during the period of the Exodus, which we've been studying here on Sunday mornings at First Church. And we see this happening over and over again in their Exodus journey, but we especially see it right before they get ready to enter the promised land. So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 this morning. We're actually not in the book of Exodus, but the Exodus narrative continues in the book of Numbers. There's some added detail there. So if you want to look up Exodus 13 and 14 on your Bible app on your phone or tablet or follow along on the First Church app or just look it up in your Bible that you have with you, go ahead and do that. It'll also be up on the screen behind me here in just a minute when we get there. But if you haven't been with us during the past few weeks let me update you on where you are where we are in this narrative you see the Israelite people they were enslaved in Egypt and they were being oppressed and abused as slaves so God decides to come to his people's rescue so he sends this leader named Moses to go and deliver the people Moses stands up to Pharaoh Pharaoh won't listen and so God miraculously rescues his people by sending plagues upon Egypt eventually Pharaoh lets them go and God again miraculously rescues uh, the Israelites by allowing them to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground he parts the Red Sea and then when the Egyptian army follows because Pharaoh changes his mind about letting them go God closes the Red Sea up on the Egyptian army and the Israelites never have to worry about the Egyptians again and so then God continues to lead his people through the desert and God provides for them he gives them food miraculously from heaven he miraculously provides water for them he also leads them with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night God time and time again shows that he is with his people even to the point when they camp out around Mount Sinai God's presence physically descends upon the mountain and the Bible says that smoke came off the mountain there were sounds of thunder and flashes of lightning the whole earth shook as God would speak directly to the people over and over again God proved that he was with his people and over and over again he rescued them he delivered them from the obstacles they faced along their journey and he also forgave them when they rebelled against him and so finally, in Numbers chapter 13, the Israelites arrive to the destination that God wanted to bring them to all along, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And here they are on the edge of the promised land, getting ready to go in. And what do the Israelites decide to do? Play it safe. See, God instructs Moses, send 12 spies in to stake out the land. Check it out and bring back a report to the people. Let them know how great this land is that I've been telling you about. So that's what happens. God, uh, I mean, Moses sends in 12 spies to Canaan. They're there for 40 days. They come back out and they give a report of everything that they had just seen. And basically, the spies tell the people, we've got some good news and we've got some bad news. The good news is the land is even better than God described it to us. It's awesome. It's a bountiful land it's the perfect paradise that you would want to live in it's a land flowing with milk and honey it is awesome but we've got some bad news and the bad news is numbers 13 28 but the people who live there already live there they're powerful and the cities are fortified and very large we even saw descendants of Anak there now Anak was a legendary giant from years ago and all the people would have recognized that name in other words people who live the people who live there they're giants they're huge they're massive they're strong they're mighty they're powerful and the spies go on to say in verse 33 of chapter 13 we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to them and we looked at the same to them 
Over the holidays, my family got to travel back to Kentucky to visit family, and while we were there, we got to go to a UK basketball game, and it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it, the four of us going, but after the game was finished, we were leaving the arena, and outside the arena, we ran into one of UK's players, EJ Montgomery, and normally, you don't get to see UK players. I know I've been to OSU games here and Tulsa games here and different sporting events here, and sometimes the players will just walk out after the game, you can get autographs, whatever. They don't do that at UK. They're like rock stars, and so they're surrounded by security. You can't get close to him, but it just so happened as we were walking out of the arena, EJ Montgomery was there, and so we went up to him, got an autograph, and Alex wanted his picture with him, and so after we took the picture, I looked at his good picture, but I thought it was hilarious. Here it is. I've got it up on the screen for you, and you can see there's EJ Montgomery, six foot eleven, and little bitty five-year-old Alex, and I just love that contrast. And you know, when I look at that picture, I think that's how the 12 spies saw themselves when they went into Canaan. These guys are huge, and there's no way in a fight that Alex is going to beat up E.J. Montgomery. You know, there's no, no way that's going to happen. And they're saying, look, we look like grasshoppers compared to them. I mean, there's no way that we're going to beat these giants. Well, at least that's what 10 of them say. Remember, there are 12 spies? Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they say, yeah, what the other guys are saying is right. The people who live in the land, they're giants, they're huge, they're powerful, they're strong. They're not lying to you, but God is with us. And if God is with us, those giants won't be any problem for him to take care of. And so they make this impassioned plea to move forward, and the Israelites have a choice to make. Do we side with the majority, 10 of the 12 spies who say we can't do it? Or do we side with the minority, the two that say we can? So let's read and see what happens. Numbers chapter 14, starting at verse 1. And this is what happens. That night, all the people of the community, the Israelite community, raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, what are, who are Moses and Aaron? They're the leaders of the people, the ones that God appointed to lead, and they're trying to follow God's will here. And the whole assembly said to them, to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In other words, they're saying, you know, Egypt didn't look so bad after all. Yeah, we were slaves, and yeah, we were imprisoned, and yeah, we were oppressed and all that stuff, but at least we didn't have to face giants. And so they're looking at one another and saying, it would be better for us just to go back to Egypt. Moses, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pack up all of our stuff, and we're going to head back to Egypt, even if they make us slaves again. And if you don't want to go with us, well, we'll just appoint for ourselves a new leader to take us back to Egypt. Now remember everything that God had done to get the Israelites to this point. We've talked about it over and over again. Plagues on Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, leading the people, pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire at night, manna from heaven, water from a rock. I mean, God's presence on the mountain. We've talked about everything that God did to prove that he was with them, to guide them, to lead them, to rescue them. Over and over again, God has shown that he is with his people, and yet they finally get to the place that God was promising them all along, that God was leading them to all along. And they say, we're gonna abandon God. We're gonna abandon his plan. We're gonna abandon those that he's appointed to lead us. 
and we're going to do our own thing and go back to Egypt. Why? It's not that they had forgotten God. In that passage that we just read, they mention God. Why has the Lord brought us here? It's not like God isn't on their minds. It's not like they just forgot about him or something, overlooked him. Why did they come to this conclusion? I'm convinced it's because their picture of God was too small. And a diminished view of God leads to a diminished life, always. For that matter, a diminished view of God leads to a diminished church. And so two of the spies, the two who were in favor of doing what God wanted them to do, Joshua and Caleb, they respond to the people, as well as Moses and Aaron, and they say, please, don't make this mistake. Don't rebel against God. And so they make another impassioned plea for the people to do what God is asking them to do. And look at what the text says, verse 8 in chapter 14. They say, if the Lord is pleased with us, we, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. In other words, we won't even have to fight. We won't have to do anything to work for it or earn it. God will give it to us. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. In other words, Joshua and Caleb, Moses and Aaron, what they say is, the same God who led us through the Red Sea, he's still with us. And if he can handle the Red Sea and he can handle Pharaoh and he can handle the Egyptian army and he can handle everything that we have dealt with so far, don't you think he can also handle these giants? We can do it. If he's with us, we just have to be willing to not settle for what's safe and trust him. And you know how the people respond to the plea that Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb make? Numbers 14, verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. They're so against doing what God wants them to do, they're willing to murder the ones who actually want to do God's plan, follow God's plan. God had been with the Israelites through so much to get them to this point. And this has been his plan all along. And now the people stand on the threshold of the promised land of living in this new day, this new era with God. And they're unwilling to move forward. Why? Because their picture of God is too small. Years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a little book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And I have a hunch that for many of us, our mental picture of God just isn't big enough. We've kind of shrunk God down in our theological dryers to where he's more of an oversized buddy than anything else. This oversized supernatural buddy who wants to give us advice and maybe some self-help information at times, but really we don't picture him as the one who holds the cosmos in his hands. I'm convinced that too many Christians in our culture today struggle with what Matt Proctor calls GDD, God Deficit Disorder. It's not that we don't think about God, it's just that our image of God, our picture of God, our vision of God is too small. It's like we're looking at God through the wrong end of a telescope. He appears smaller than he actually is. But the truth is, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me say that again. 
What comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And as I said just a little bit ago, a diminished view of God always leads to a diminished life. A low view of God will always produce a low life for God. And when our God is too small, we end up having a passive attitude towards Him. We don't believe His claims about us. and We become apathetic toward His mission. And if there's one piece of advice, one truth that I believe our generation of God's people needs to hear, if there's one truth that the church today needs to hear more than anything else, it's this. Never underestimate God. No matter what, no matter what obstacles are before us, no matter what pressure is coming at us, no matter what God is asking us to do or to risk or to sacrifice, no matter what, never, ever, ever underestimate the God we serve. Because when we do, when we underestimate God, this is what happens. Three things actually happen, and we see this in our text. The first is fear paralyzes our lives. And that was the case for the Israelites. Two different times in the verses that we just read, the Israelites were told not to be afraid. They're scared to death, and we see this in their response to knowing that there are these giants living in the land. In Numbers 13, verse 31, 10 of the spies say, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Then you jump down to 14, verse 3, and the people say, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? The people are scared to death. And here's the thing. They have a reason to be. I mean, the giants that they're facing, they are real. These aren't imagined giants. These giants aren't a figment of their imagination. These giants are real. And they're big and they're strong and they're powerful. They're intimidating, no doubt. But the problem here is the focus of the people is on the giants in front of them rather than the God who is over them. And anytime our focus is on the giants in front of us rather than the God who's over us, fear will always paralyze our lives. See, we're gonna face giants. I know there are some people that believe and some preachers that teach that if you're doing life right, you know, if you live by faith, then everything's just gonna work out, that you're never gonna have any problems or issues and God's just gonna bless, bless, bless you. And yes, God blesses us, but not in the ways we always think. We're gonna, we're gonna face giants. In fact, the New Testament says that whoever wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are going to face giants at times. We're gonna face obstacles. There's going to be pressure that we experience at times because we are followers of Jesus. We're going to face giants. But the key to overcoming those giants is not focusing on them, but focusing on the God who is above us. And that's why I believe that it's important that we regularly remind ourselves just how big, just how awesome just how powerful our God really is and I think that's one reason why corporate worship together as the church is so important see when I was a kid growing up in church I came to church because my parents said that's what you were supposed to do that's why I came to church I came to church because the Bible said do not forsake the assembly of yourselves it was commanded in scripture be in church so I came to church you know why I come to church now I know it's still commanded but I'm part of the church now because I need it I need a reality check because when I live out there in the world, it looks at times like evil is winning. It looks like darkness is getting the best of God's people. Just turn on the news, read the papers, get online. Darkness is out there. 
And the reason why I love this moment where we come together as a church is because we get a reality check. We are reminded that God is over all, that he does have a plan, that he is with his people. He has not abandoned us. We need this reminder. We need to come together and worship so that as a body together, we realize who is really on the throne. I heard someone say one time, when you feel like worshiping the least is when you need it the most. And I believe that's true. Because in the presence of our God, our fears assume their proper size. That's why regular worship is so important. It transforms our perspective. I'll never forget in a previous church I served in, there was a time when we used to have a closing prayer every Sunday, and so different men in the church would close in prayer, and this one gentleman would close every single Sunday saying the same prayer, and he meant well, he had a good heart, but he would say, and God, as we leave this place and go out into the real world, be with us, and then he would finish up his prayer. And you know, for a while I thought that wasn't a big deal, that's a nice prayer. But I honestly believe that what that guy said isn't right. I think the Bible teaches the opposite of that. What that guy was basically saying is what's out there is real, but what we're doing in here isn't. I don't believe that for a second. Guys, it's what's out there that's fake because out there, Satan is only posing as king. In here, we recognize the true king, the Lord of lords, the one who is on the cosmic throne. We represent the one. We, We remember the one. We acknowledge the one who truly reigns. It's a reality check. And I think it's important that as a church we constantly get that reminder of how big our God is. Because here's the thing, God is going to ask us to do some tough stuff as his followers. And the only people who can do the tough stuff that God is asking us to do are those who see him clearly. And I believe that's why the church is here, to show the world who's really in charge to show the world that what they're living for, it's a bunch of lies that a fake king is trying to sell them. Throughout the history of the world, since the beginning of creation, God has been moving his church to this point. Some people think that when you become a Christian, the whole point is just to go to heaven so that we get baptized into Christ, then we just kind of wait until we die. And I don't buy that. I do believe we're all looking forward to heaven. Don't misunderstand me. But I believe we're here for a purpose. I believe all of history has been moving to this point so that we can go out and make a difference in this world and change lives and introduce people to the God who sits on the throne. And so I have a dream for the church. I have a dream of a church that's willing to do whatever it takes to unleash love on those who are far from him, to unleash love on those who are paralyzed by the fears of this world. I dream of a church where the skeptic, the seeker, the rejected, the lonely, the abused, the hurt, the untouchable, the filthy, the sinner, all come together and discover, maybe for the very first time, that they actually do matter to God. Instead of playing it safe with church services and trying to satisfy the consumeristic mentality that is often found in church, I dream of a church that is a spiritual trauma center where the beaten and the broken come to be healed. I dream of a church where alcoholics and addicts and the confused, those who've been wounded sexually, victims of violence, find healing in the presence of our God. 
I dream of a church where people don't just show up out of ritual or habit or obligation, but where following Jesus consumes who they are. I dream of a church that's mobile, that has a presence in our neighborhoods, in our colleges, in our schools, in our places of work, in our factories, on our ball fields. I dream of a church that sends its people out to those places where no one else wants to go, to the prisons, to the bars, to the slums. I dream of a church where people live as missionaries every single day for the cause of Christ. I dream of a church that's leading the way and breaking down racial walls, economic walls, social walls, those things that divide us so that we can all be one in Jesus. I dream of a church where marriages are restored, where families are made whole, and children are loved by their parents and parents are loved by their children. I dream of a church where we put our own personal agendas and wants and desires aside and we realize that we are living for something bigger than ourselves. We are living for the cause of Christ. I dream of a church that scares the socks off of Satan, that shakes the very foundations of hell and overpowers and overcomes the evils of this world. That's the church I dream of. And I believe that's the church that Jesus established us to be. And if that's the church he wants us to be, we can do it. But it takes, it takes us shifting our focus to where we take our eyes off of the obstacles that are before us and we focus on the one who is over us. That's why as a church, we want to continue to unleash a revolution of God's love. And we have ministries that do that, like Love 918. Right now, thank you, Zeb, yeah. A little bit partial, aren't you? That's okay. We have ministries like Love 918 that are supporting our community, that are reaching out to those in Northeast Oklahoma. And there's always something for you to do to volunteer with Love 918. Right now, we're taking up winter clothes. If you wanna bring winter clothes to people, it's gonna be a warm day today, but so it's get cold again, but still bring in your winter clothes to help people. We support local missions, like our food pantry. We do global mission work. We take mission trips. We have a next-gen ministry that's reaching out um, to the next generation. We have so much stuff that's happening here in order to unleash a revolution of God's love. And that's why I'm excited about our new care ministry. You heard the announcement that was made earlier about how we're starting a new care ministry, or maybe not starting a new, we've always had care ministry, but we're expanding it to do more than what it's ever done. And so what, what we wanna see happen is have groups form and teams form, things like prayer teams and uh, counseling teams that will help people who are hurting, who feel broken. We wanna have groups such as grief share and divorce care. We wanna have celebrate recovery work taking place for those who are suffering with addictions and, and other issues. We want our care ministry to expand and grow because we believe that so many people are trapped by the lies of this world and we're here to set them free. And so I'm excited about the future of our care ministry here at First Church. And if you want to volunteer with that, there's going to be ways in the upcoming days for you to do just that. And Jake is going to be a great, great leader of that care ministry group. He's excited about it. We're excited about it. But we're here to help people see the God who's bigger than their giants. So first of all, when we underestimate God, I know I took a while to get there, but first of all, when we underestimate God, fear paralyzes us, and we don't want that to happen. Secondly, when we underestimate God, we listen to all the wrong voices. See, it's funny to me in our passage how God is repeatedly saying, I'm gonna give you the promised land, I'm gonna take you there, I'm gonna be with you, and what is it that the people do? They listen to everyone else but God. In Numbers 13, verse 32, the 10 spies who don't wanna go in, they say, it says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. 
And then if you jump on down to 14, verse two, it says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? See, when our God is too small, what ends up happening is we want to abandon his plan because we don't trust him enough. And so we seek another plan. Maybe we create our own plan and we start to listen to the thousands of voices out there who are trying to distract us from God. And guys, even in our culture today, there are thousands of voices competing for our attention. The voice of pleasure whispers, please yourself. The voice of riches says, comfort yourself. The voice of pride says, promote yourself. The voice of arrogance shouts, trust yourself. And all those voices claim to know exactly what you need to do and exactly what it takes to live a happy life. But those of us who have followed those voices in the past, and I've been one of them, know from experience those voices just enslave you. There's only one voice that leads to freedom, and that's the voice of our God. And one day, all other voices will be silenced, and the only thing that will matter is if you've been listening to the one voice that lasts for all eternity. And then third, when we underestimate God, what ends up happening is we settle for what's familiar. That's what the Israelites wanted to do. Canaan, the promised land, it was scary. Egypt, well, it was familiar. So they ran to what was familiar, but God wanted so much more for them. And I think the same is true for us today. I think, and I might be wrong on this, but I think most people in our culture today are bored out of their minds, just going through the motions of the cookie-cutter existence that this world has told them is normal. They know there has to be more to life. They know they were created for more. And I wonder if most people aren't living a safe life, a cookie-cutter life, because it's just what they see everyone else living. And that's why we're here, to give them an alternative, to show them that they were created for more. Guys, God didn't create you for slavery. He created you to live, to live with true purpose and meaning, and the same is true for every single person we encounter. God created no one for slavery. God had much bigger plans in store for the Israelites, but they couldn't see those plans because their image of him, their vision of him was too small. They continued to underestimate him. Guys, don't settle. Our God is too big for you to settle for a lesser life. Our God is too big for you to settle for a lesser purpose. Let me just ask, is there an area of your life right now where you're playing it safe? And maybe you're playing it safe because your picture of God is too small. What What about when it comes to serving? Is there an area right now that you know you could be serving in? Maybe it's in our church, volunteering in some way. Maybe it's helping out Love 918 or some other local mission. Maybe it's just showing love to your neighbor, your coworker. Is there some way that you could be serving right now, but you're choosing to play it safe instead? What about, is it your giving? I mean, do you know right now that you could be giving more, but you choose not to because instead you would rather play it safe? And God has opened up doors and blessed you so that you can give more to his work and mission, but you want to play it safe instead? Is it your own spiritual growth? Do you skip out on church every now and then because you think, hey, it's not a big deal, or are you not reading your Bible like you should, not praying, not part of a, of a group here at church that can help hold you accountable because you're just playing it safe, you're doing what's comfortable? Is it some sin that has a hold on you that you know you should give up, you know you need help with, you know you need someone to walk alongside you, but instead you're just letting that sin get the best of you? Maybe you need to ask for help. 
I don't know what it is, but is there some area of life where you're just doing what's comfortable? You're just playing it safe. You're just doing what's predictable because God created you for more. And I wonder what would happen if we as a church left the comforts of our daily routine and loved people like Jesus loves us. I wonder what would happen if we left the comforts of our daily routine and actually made the sacrifices that Jesus is calling us to make. I'm convinced that if we did, not only would it change our lives, but we would change Northeast Oklahoma. On our own, we can't defeat the giants around us. But with God, our giants assume their proper size. I held this football up a second ago, and I bought this football this week for $20 at Walmart. And so let me ask you, how much is this football worth? It's not a hard question, $20. In my hands, this football is worth exactly what I paid for it, $20. But put this same football in the hands of Tom Brady, the quarterback for New England. All of a sudden, this football is worth $29 million plus bonuses and endorsements. Put this football in the hands of Aaron Donald, the defensive tackle for the Rams. All of a sudden, it's worth $41 million a year plus bonuses and endorsements. It all depends on whose hand this ball is in. Guys, a shepherd's staff in my hand is nothing more than a walking stick. But in the hands of God, it parts the Red Sea. A slingshot in my hands is just a toy. But in God's hands, it knocks down a giant. Some loaves of bread and a few fish in my hands makes a snack. But in God's hands, it feeds thousands. A couple of nails in my hands might hang a picture frame. But in the hands of God, a couple of nails save the world. It all depends on whose hands it's in. And I just want to ask your life, whose hands is it in? Because I believe that God has great plans for you and for this church. But in order for it to happen, in order for us to move forward as he wants us to, we've got to place our lives in his hands. Never, ever underestimate our God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had to open up your word, to study it, to grow by studying it, from studying it. And Father, I just pray that as a church, we won't underestimate you, but we will listen to your voice and we will carry out your mission and that you'll do great things in and through us. If there's anybody today that's playing it safe, Father, I pray that they're willing to step outside of their comfort zone and live by faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.